This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, highlights of Series 11. Henry Jeffries on England's Wine Revolution. Julia Harding MW on editing the OCW. Ryan Chetty Awardener on being Mr. Lion. Sandy Hislop on 40 years in whiskey. Sarah Heller, MW, on Italy, and Domaine Busquets, Celebrating Owners. English wine. At the turn of the century, it was still largely a joke, but nobody's laughing now because our winemakers are on a roll. A story Henry Jeffries tells in his new book, Vines in a Cold Climate, charting the remarkable story of these pioneers who defied the odds. And he starts with a bit of history. Most books on the subject go back to the Roman times, but there isn't isn't really a massive amount of evidence for viticulture in Roman times. And even if there is, there's no continuity at all. So it's slightly irrelevant. So I did did touch on it very briefly. And then there was a, a sort of flowering in the early medieval period. The climate was a bit warmer. In the Doomsday Book, there's lots of evidence of, of vines. Well, well, not evidence, but there's lots of information about vines for, for, for tax purposes and stuff. And you can hear it in the place names, like kind of Vinchester, anything with a vin in it or a win, often means there were vines there. So southern England, sort of up to East Anglia, up into the Midlands, um, was, you know, there were, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything compared with sort of Bordeaux or, or, or Italy, but there was, a, there was a lot of it going on. Um, and I suppose sort of two things put an end to that. First of all was Bordeaux, where when, when you can get oceans of delicious red wine from just over the river, so when, um, just over the water. So when uh, Bordeaux became part of the English crown, um, when El- Eleanor of Aquitaine married Henry II, suddenly it's like, why struggle to grow grapes in Kent when you've got France, you know, so obviously, and then the climate got a lot colder around the 14th century as well. You had what is known as the Little Ice Age, and viticulture almost completely died out. And then with a few, you know, there were a few eccentrics, growing grapes, what's his name, Peeps, visits of a, a, a vineyard in Walthamstow, there was Paynes Hill in Surrey, but really... You know, and it was, you know, it would have been just an extraordinary amount of work. Um, And when you've got Portuguese, Spanish, you know, if you think about Britain was at the centre of global trade. So why would you bother, really? I was fascinated to read that there was early Pinot Noir in Kent, because we tend to think about the darker years for English wine involving very strange Germanic uh, hybrids and crosses and so forth. But actually, this is Pinot, something that England in the finest places is now excelling at, although it's very small scale. This is Pinot Noir in Kent from hundreds of years ago, isn't it? Yes, it was um, discovered by Edward Hyams in a, in a uh, graveyard in a Rutum in, in, in Kent, not far from Maidstone. And it's been discovered to be a clone of Pinot Noir. And no one is quite sure how, how it got there. But considering lots of landowners used to have vines, if just for decorative purposes, it's not a, you know, it's not inconceivable how it, how it, how it got there. But there were some other French vines that were planted. There was a vineyard in Paynes Hill in Surrey that had, uh, probably had Pinot Mernier. It's hard to know. Um, and then Castle Koch in South Wales had Gamay planted. So there were, you know, there were French varieties being planted. It's just, I think it would have been very, very infrequently they would have been ripe enough to make a good red wine out of. You have a rye 
turn of phrase. And there are some fantastically English names from central casting among those early wine pioneers. Uh, Major General Sir Guy Salisbury-Jones at Hambledon, I yeah. think. Hugh Zarty King. Margaret Moore yeah, Brown. Uh, John yeah. Patrick Crichton-Stewart. We've got the Marquis of Butte. Charles Hamilton, the Duke of Abercorn. It sounds a bit like a character list for an Agatha Christie murder mystery, early English wine, doesn't it? It was, there were a lot of toffs involved. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of colonels and majors and sort of people with blazers on doing it as a, there's a wonderful video. If, 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 if our people, after they've listened to it, want to go on the Hambledon website. And it was from a Pathé News thing of a vintage Hambledon in Hampshire in the 1960s. And everybody's wearing like a tweed suit, ties, you know, kind of doing, doing the, doing the harvest. And I just thought, I just thought it was wonderful. It just kind of showed the sort of, that sort of 1950s spirit of, you know, make do and wonderful. Yeah, quite a few crusty ex-military types. Um, is, is there any reason that that was the case? Is it just a kind of money thing? Yeah, well, I think it was it was a, having a good pension helped. So I think a lot of these people, they've, you know, they've been in the military, reached a certain rank. Most of them were probably quite eccentric, you know, and I think the the military was a, was a, was, was a bit of a breeding ground for eccentrics, but also they were, you know, they were they were doers. You know, they'd been in the army, they'd done things, they'd built bridges, they'd, you know, they'd fought a war. You know, they thought they thought they could do things. So they you know, they thought, well, I've got my pension, I've got some got some land in Hampshire. Why not try and make wine? You know, it was a sort of you know, an optimistic generation, I think, that kind of fifties generation. They thought we can do this. I mean, they, it, it turned out that they it was a lot harder than they than they thought it would be. But they, you know, you've got to admire their spirit. Yes, and uh, that history is really compelling. But actually, you begin the book in the introduction, um, setting the scene in a sodden Kent vineyard, um, having been invited to plant a vine for Tattinger's first English vineyard. And it's a really apt place to start because it's a, a physical symbol of how seriously English wine has been taken in recent years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was um, It was a wonderful day out, um, but also it was, you know, perhaps they didn't pick the best weather for it. So we were in May planting Pinot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Mernier vines as part of a sort of publicity stunt for Tattinger, for their domain Evremont Vineyard, which is actually very near where I live now in, in Chillum in, in Kent. And the rain was horizontal. It was muddy. It was just, and it must have, they must have just thought, you know, what, what are we doing here? And it just looked, it, you go there now and it's incredible. It's just acre after acre of vines. I went last July and there were grapes and it just looked amazing. At the time, it looked like a, just a muddy field in Kent. And you just thought, this is a bit crazy. But obviously, they hadn't done it on a whim. You know, they'd invested millions in research, in consultants. And, you know, I think I think what they, the, the first wines that come out of there will be extraordinarily impressive. But it's still, there's still an incongruity about being in field in Southern England and having vines, I, I think, which, and I think that's something that probably won't go away for some time. You don't know which vine it was. You didn't leave a little label saying Henry's vine or well, anything then. Yeah, well, apparently some people planted theirs in the wrong place. So there was some Chardonnay mixed up with some Pinot Noir. So if that was me, you know, <laughs> sorry, Pierre Emmanuel. <laughs> yes, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, it, I'm sure the wines will be great and, it, and I won't have spoiled them. If someone who doesn't know this story and obviously hasn't yet read the book is listening, thinking, Tattinger, England, I didn't know you could get that. Um, you can't yet, can you? No, it comes out next year, probably. That's going to be a big deal, isn't it? It's going to be a huge deal. And I think they're going to be judged by the very finest in the country. So if they're not as good as Coates and Seeley or Nye Timber, then people are going to be like, ooh, you know, are they doing the right thing? But obviously, you know, the vines are young, as you know, in sparkling wine, aging is, I was going to say aging is everything, but aging isn't everything, but aging is a huge part of the flavour as well. So, you know, I think the yeah. wines, there's no doubt the wines will be good. They might, Are they going to be the best in the country? They might not be. Will will they get there in the end? Almost certainly. You know, they're, you know, champagne companies work on a different timescale 
to, 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 to the rest of us or, or even to other wine companies. They've got to work 10, 20, 30 years in advance. So, you know, they're, they're experienced. They, you know, it's Tattinger who've obviously been doing it a long time. Hatch Mansfield, they've, the British distributor, they've been doing it a long time. So, you know, they're going to look at it with a long-term thing and just, you know, if they get some criticism for the first vintages, I don't think they're really going to care. Very excited to taste it. Um, it's, um, I hadn't previously understood the rationale for the name of their English cuvee. Tell us a little bit about the man who inspired the name for Tattinger's first English sparkling wine. Yes, he was, um, I can't remember his full title, but he was the something, the Duke de Saint-Evremont, and he was a the French ambassador to London. And he was famous for, first of all, he probably introduced champagne to the court of King Charles II. So this was 1660s restoration. You know, the, um, it was the end of the sort of Puritan Cromwell era and everyone was really up for having as much fun as possible. Um, and he introduced champagne from France. And then probably what happened was that this wine came over in barrels, um, in the winter and began re-fermenting again in the, in the spring. So people had sparkling champagne and then bottles strong bottles were invented around the same time in in england so they would have experimented with bottling this wine and everyone was a notorious notoriously louche he had these kind of parties where people drank champagne out of women's shoes and all kinds of kind of naughtiness went on uh, so he's a very good very good amp- he was a very good amp- he was one of the first champagne ambassadors you know one of the people who brought kind of glamour and naughtiness and stuff to wine. Henry Jeffries on the man who inspired Domaine Evremond. For anyone who questions whether much really changes in the world of wine, there are 272 substantive new entries in the newly released Oxford Companion to Wine. The fifth edition of the OCW, as it's affectionately known, has just been released. Julia Harding, MW, is the lead editor, and she told me how she oversees this million-word epic. Right from the day the previous edition, the fourth edition, went to press, uh, I started a file with possible updates. And so for, in this case, eight years... I've kept a file of everything I've come across, heard about, somebody's told me about, or I've read that suggests maybe we need a new entry uh, in the book. I'll check, see what we've got in the book, see whether I think we need something. And that's part of the the process of, of, of new entries. In terms of the revisions, I mean, some of them do come from, are instigated by the contributors who, as top experts in their fields, are better equipped to revise entries than I would be, for example. So while I'm, I oversee and edit all of the entries on viticulture and, and enology, I'm neither a viticulturist nor an enologist. So uh, I will question and edit anything I get back. But these are experts who know exactly what's going on in their fields, uh, practitioners as well, obviously, not just academics. So there's a lot of different things that have been revised. I would say that a lot of the changes, in terms of the revisions, a lot of them are related to climate change and responses to climate change. So that might be within the viticulture sections in terms of where vineyards are planted. In the regional sections, that might be going up to higher altitudes. That might be different grape varieties. So that, and all the all the even the all the climate related entries need to be thoroughly revised, which they were by um, Greg Jones, who's who's again an expert in this field. But we find that with having experts, regional experts, not just people who know all about their country, but they might know about their specific region, they can see very clearly how things have changed, particularly to do with climate. Not not exclusively, also people's creativity, what winemaking people. What, what winemaking changes, what viticulture changes, developments in the field, again, sometimes as a result of climate change, but not necessarily. Sometimes somebody just works out how to do something better. We need to revise that. 
but also just um, let me give you another example from the areas that Jancis was covered. Celebrity wine. There probably wasn't much focus on celebrity wine 10 years ago, and now mm. it's a thing. We write about uh, a tasting term, glue-glue, you know, a gluggable wine. People didn't use that before, and unicorn wine. All sorts of things that are that do change. They're, they're not just physical changes. They're also trends in wine in, t- in terms of viticulture. It might be to do with diseases. Um, so the expansion of a problem there's uh, in the US, there's something called a brown marmorated stink bug, which wasn't so much of a problem 10 years ago, but it's increasing. Something like uh, the carbon footprint of wine, that wasn't really talked about so much 10 years ago, not not widely in the wine world. It, experts who were thinking about these things long before we wrote the book uh, were, but not generally in the wine world. Another example would be regenerative viticulture. That's a more recent discussion, even if it was around before, but under different terminology. Then in winemaking, there's a technique called stabulation, which is to do with um, getting more flavour, in, particularly in rosé wines, and it's to do with leaving the juice with the uh, flesh of the grape at a cold temperature before it ferments, not the skins, but the flesh to increase the flavour. And that's a technique that's been around, but it's come back into fashion. All sorts of things that have been really discovered as effective. Geotextiles, a sort of textile material used to protect vines in cold weather. So there's a lot of things that people have, have discovered and there's things that are happening. So we would have mentioned wildfires in previous entries, but only under their geographical entry. Now we have an entry on wildfires and the same way we have an entry on smoke taint. It just wasn't a problem 10 years ago in this way that it is now. So there's a huge number of things that have changed that are trends or that are changes in the world. And as well as these are reflected then in the geographical entries because people are doing different things, planting in different places. So it really is quite remarkable. And then there's all the packaging changes, the trends towards as you, meant, you mentioned, the glass weight and alternative packaging. So we have a new entry on paper bottles. The entry on kegs is vastly expand, expanded. Um, all of the tech, all of the statistics that we have in the grape variety entries need to be updated. It's it's um, it's really uh, an endless job. Uh, I don't know whether mm-hmm. everybody listening will have heard the phrase painting the fourth road bridge, but it's like mm-hmm. once you start at the beginning, you get to the end, and then you have to go back to the beginning again. Well, you really do, literally with that file, don't you? I was astonished when I, I read that you basically, you send it off to print and then you start that file pretty much that day, don't you? You do. And it's a little bit depressing because you think, oh. I bet. Yeah, yeah I, I can imagine. I mean, uh, just because it is, uh, well, uh, you, you, like a child, as, as Jancis has, has said to you, really, isn't it? This never leaves you. That's that's right. I mean, there there is a moment when you hand over the text of the new edition to the publisher for the first time, and that is a moment to breathe a deep sigh of relief. Which was for our, for this edition, it was the first of August last year. But then there's lots more stages where you asked about the process. So then the text comes back to us for us to check all the cross references. Then it goes back to the typesetter again. Uh, then we have it back again for the first proofs where again we can make changes but not too big or big changes and then we get the second proofs um, so th- there's moments every time you send one stage back to the publisher you you do breathe a sigh of relief but the biggest sigh comes on publication day which was the 14th of September yeah and what does it feel like to see it because I know uh, 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 I've never written a book, but I know people who have who say that that when it drops through, and this is by the way not normally something on the scale of the OCW, but when this book drops through the letterbox and they open the packaging, there's this moment of just such joy. Uh, is that something uh, you feel when you see the finished version in front of you? Oh, absolutely. When the preview copies arrived at the beginning of September. Uh, and I I was just about to go away, but I couldn't, I had to delay and tear open the box. Um, I knew what the cover was going to look like, but I hadn't seen the finished version. And just to open the pages and see the physical proof of all that work, ready to go, ready to go out and meet the world, it's a, it's a great moment. And in fact, anybody will tell you that I'm not a fan of social media. 
and I, I do have an Instagram account, but I've only ever posted on it once. Uh, and but when I opened this box, uh, my partner uh, took a photograph of me, and uh, I uploaded the photo just because I was so happy to see this book in the flesh. There is an extent, as I mentioned in the introduction, to which um, the OCW um, is a kind of Bible. Uh, for uh, you, know, you mentioned you did your diploma, obviously, before your MW. Um, I haven't done the MW, uh, but I have done the diploma. And I, I found myself using the OCW a lot, uh, but I, then I do for my writing as well. It's, it's, it's one of my sort of fact-checking processes, or if I just need to shine a light on something that I don't feel I know enough about. But um, I know from my own days as a a BBC editor, that it's not always possible to take a definitive stance on an issue. Sometimes, you know, it can be very divisive or two things can be true as well. Um, How do you approach that? That's a very good question. Well, I think if there are two views or if there are advantages and disadvantages to certain things, then we try to present both sides. So, for example, uh, in the entry on cover crops, that will explain the benefits and also any disadvantages and which particular types of cover crop are better in this, which sort of environment, what sort of soil. So we do try to show both sides to an argument um, and think we also have updated as much as possible, all of the bibliographical references. Um, So in more technical entries, but not exclusively those, we we have uh, references at the end of the entry for further reading or to uh, for people to look up something that we have referred to in the entry and so we would we hope that a reader who's really interested and wants to know more can go to those references and look them up and it's it is just a question of trying to make sure that we don't take one stance but in some entries i think terroir is a good example which is a very divisive can be very divisive we mm. make it quite clear that our approach generally in the book is to think of terroir as uh, physical environmental influences on wine. But we do also say that other people would include quite reasonably the human involvement. And we would give a mention of somebody who's written about it from that point of view, and that would be included in the references. So if we have taken a particular stance, we'll try and make that obvious. We won't try to let bias just go through. We'll say this is what the way we see it, um, but this is the other point of view. Julia Harding, MW. To a cocktail legend next, Ryan Chetiawadana opened his first bar, White Lion, in Hoxton, East London, a decade ago. Super Lion, Dandelion, Cub, Lioness, Silver Lion and Seed Library have all followed, as have a host of awards. To mark... London Cocktail Week, Ryan recreated five of those groundbreaking bars under one roof. And I began our chat by trying to unlock the mystery of one of them, Dandelion, which was, um, you know, raved about. And Mm -hmm. just as it was named World's Best Bar, you shut it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, I think there's a, a couple of people that have been confused by that move. But strangely enough, it felt so logical to me. And actually, even after, because we, I think we announced four days before 50 Best that we were due to close it. And a lot of people turned around and said, well, you've won this award. Surely you're not going to close now. And actually, it was the opposite. I was like, I've, I've never been more sure. And, you know, there was, I listen, I loved that bar. I loved, I'm, it's been so lovely having some of the old team members kind of rejoin us this week to be able to celebrate it. But it's everything that we did at the early part of the company was to challenge and encourage a discussion. And I think because the landscape had been quite kind of narrow for a while at that, that time, the, the two projects that we created to, to kind of spur those discussions were quite, um, I described them as pointy and I need to find a better description than that, but they were, they were provocative. They were there to address something in quite a head on way. You know, White Lion looked at the idea of, um, I suppose, one of the, the established rules of making, one of the things that are inherent to a cocktail bar to be able to create a drink. What is the role of bartending or sustainability, all of those things? Dan Lion was a, a logical, I suppose, mirror to that in the fact that it kind of went, 
well, there's a bounty of things in nature. You know, why do we just use citrus as a acidulant? Why do we use sugar as the only sweetener? Why is it only these sets of ingredients that get used in the cocktail world? And so we we kind of pushed kind of to demonstrate that there was a load of, of, of different things to celebrate from plant life. But both of the bars, and it was strange that it was through a four-year cycle, um, both of them stopped being weird. And they stopped really having a conversation. That was, to me, the thing that I noticed. There was a point where it felt like they had achieved what they needed to do. And so as a company that was always trying to to kind of push and innovate and you know, get our team ex- excited by, you know, always looking at something new, it felt strange to to suddenly feel like we were coasting. And I think that was never a position we wanted to be in. It didn't feel appropriate. It didn't feel reflective of what the brand was meant to be about. And it also didn't feel fun. And, you know, I think once we had that realization, it was almost like a light switch. It was like, okay, this is, this was wonderful but it's now time to look at what's in front instead of what's kind of just looking backwards. And I think, you know, the, the point I often say is it's, it would have felt arrogant just to, to kind of carry on with, with any of the things that we were just doing. It would be for our, for our own egos. It would only be for, you know, the people that had already been bought into it. It wouldn't have recruited more people. It wouldn't have uh, challenged a new way of thinking. So we, we, we shifted and, you know, I think it was not only a shift in terms of those bars, it was also a shift in terms of our mentality. So all of the bars that we've opened since, you know, it's been incredible to see this, this kind of embrace of change in the industry. And it's, you know, now coming from, you know, innovation is being celebrated a lot more. There's more people kind of pushing the boundaries of what food and drink can be. So we wanted to build that kind of room for evolution into the, the next series of bars. So they didn't need to be as pointy and they could have their own, space to continue to change without us having to do something as drastic as closing them and and reopening something brand new. You've been described as a disruptor. And I just wonder if you disrupt yourself as much as anyone else. (laughs) I I mean, there's certainly an amount that, yeah, I think I I get happiest in that space where we're we're doing something that feels um, challenging. You know, whenever we get together as a team and, you know, it's, it's lovely to be able to have those moments where we ask ourselves, you know, does it feel exciting not only for us, but do we think we can get people excited? Would it feel relevant to both our peers and to the people that we we love creating for? You know, and, and that kind of reflection of going, you know, we want to be able to continue to to push ourselves and to feel like we're excited and, and, and kind of exploring something new. That's that's really crucial. And I think, yeah, I've got a bit of a short attention span, I suppose, but it's um, it's it's certainly something that we use as kind of like an internal guide to make sure that we're, yeah, continuing to to kind of stay true to what we we set out to be. I was struck, you know, uh, the decisions you take, dandelion being perhaps the uh, most extreme example, but there are a number throughout your, the, the, the the lion history, if you like, <laughs> they're not commercial decisions in the kind of conventional sense if you were a large corporation uh, the chief financial officer uh, would would have a hernia frankly to be honest so i mean do you think you're a, a good businessman it's a good question and i suppose it depends on what you know the a business's success is is what the goals are and i think it's never been we've never wanted to be kind of pie in the sky creatives that don't do things in a commercial sense but at the same time, money has never been the motivator for me. I've never, you know, cared for like the, the success to me being that we've got, you know, fast cars and beautiful artworks and all of those things. Like it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm very thankful we get to to kind of explore a luxury world and we have lots of friends who who look after us to kind of see nice things. But it's it wasn't the motivation. And um, I, I suppose the only thing I would kind of contrast that with is, you know, I do feel a responsibility. It's not that I'm flippant about the ideas. I'm very cautious of the fact that, you know, we have a good number of people in the company now, and I feel very responsible for making sure that we're not doing things in a way that's putting their lives and everything that they've put into this business in jeopardy. So it's it's perhaps not good business in a traditional view of it, um, but it has meant that we are kind of, you know, offering a different set of values. Of course, 
from from their point of view, we try and um, make things as kind of like financially stable and, and beneficial and, and lucrative to, to everybody involved in it. it. It's also about offering them kind of growth and excitement and a sense of ownership over what we're doing. And I suppose a sense of pride in, in the idea of going, we're going to push and do something that feels quite different to the rest of the landscape. So I, it's, a, it's a hard one to answer. I don't know if I'm, I certainly wouldn't count myself as a, uh, a, a kind of excellent business person, but I'm very thankful to have business partners who are. Um, so I kind of like trust in in their kind of like outlook of it. But I think we're all aligned on the fact that, you know, the money wasn't the motivation for it. Yeah, and they go with you basically on that. You've obviously got people alongside you who um, share your ethos. I feel very thankful for that. I think, you know, again, that's come from the clarity of what we've we've tried to be. We've always said, you know, we're a company that's trying to do things differently. You know, I think everybody who's joined the company, you know, if you if you wanted to make kind of classic cocktails and do things in a very traditional way, I love that world. It's not in any way that I have any issues with doing that. It's just not what we offer. So it's not going to really give growth or probably a sense of pride for people if that's what they need to do day in, day out. But it's it's also nice being very kind of clear about, okay, this is what we offer if you want to come and work with us. You know, we are going to try and collaborate with lots of different people. We do have a very democratic creative process. We do want all of the team members to have a sense of pride and ownership in the work that they do. So they get um, a kind of a value from it, but they also understand what they're buying into. It would be very tempting uh, to uh, just roll out your very successful brand. And of course, you have done that to an extent. We have uh, Washington, D.C., we have um, Amsterdam, and Ooh. we have uh, the, the, the ventures within London, but uh, they, they come and go, obviously, uh, to, to an extent. Um, you could have expanded, probably uh, even allowing for the pandemic, a lot faster, but you're clearly quite careful about that. Yes, I think... There are certain things that we've done in the business where we know that they can kind of be sent out into the world. And I think things like the media bits that we've done, there's there's something really nice about actually, you know, creating something, but also letting go of it, you know, it becoming its own thing when people take that item or that that piece of TV and it becomes their own to kind of go away with. But in terms of the way that we operate the venues, it's it's very hands-on. And that's not that we're there kind of making the decisions. Like All of the teams are enabled to make it their own space, but we're there to be able to, you know, and I speak particularly for Alex and I who work across the, the across all the venues is to be able to try and look at new opportunities and avenues for them to be able to, to kind of find new ways in which they can grow and apply their creativity. So it would be a very hard thing to, to just flood it out and I also think it would it would be, particularly with the products we have, it wouldn't necessarily work in that way. They are quite niche. There is something about them that requires a very high human touch. And there's something about them that, you know, it, it requires the, the kind of personalities and the care to have gone into it. And that's not inherently scalable. Ryan Chetty-Awadana, a.k.a. Mr. Lion. It's no exaggeration to say that Sandy Hislop is a legend in the world of whiskey. The director of blending and inventory at Chivas Brothers, he's only the fifth master blender in the history of Ballantines, and he now oversees that venerable brand alongside all of Chivas Brothers' single malts and blended Scotch whiskies, including the Glenlivet and Royal Salute, amongst others. Not bad for someone who told me he came into whisky by accident. My story into the whisky world is more by chance than anything else. I wanted to go and study chemistry. My father wasn't very keen on me going to university. He was uh, ran his own business and some of his friends that kids had gone to uni had come out and not really done anything successful and he was a bit worried it was going to cost a lot of money for me to go and study and then what were my prospects at the end but if I'm if I'm absolutely honest with you he spotted a job in the local paper for a job with Stuart's Cream of the Barley Whiskey Company working in their laboratory sample room and also you got day release to go and study chemistry up in Aberdeen at Robert Gordon's and he said to me this is the job for you chum you should be you should be applying for that. You could finance yourself through uh, through your studies. Um, so probably probably I was a bit coerced into it, but 
to be honest, very quickly I started having an absolutely brilliant time working at Stuart's Cream of the Barley and it was absolutely the right thing for me at the end of the day and gave me a fabulous grounding in whiskey working in a small company with lots of different things that you got involved in. It was, uh, yeah, but, but to answer your question succinctly, it was just by chance. Yeah, what a piece of chance. What serendipity. Yeah. So how did you then develop this very specific skill set. Obviously, you've been doing it for 40 years. So these days, experience is a very large part of your skill set. But how did you learn things like nosing, for example? When I started working, I was I was working as a, a sample room assistant. So I was setting up all the samples for the master blender and making sure that all the right reference samples were set up against the new production, making sure the triangular tests were all properly set up and and he he started getting me involved in it and started getting me to do the triangular tests which are two the two of one whiskey and one of another and can you pick the difference can you differentiate the flavors and i was able i was able to do that quite quite easily and i was i started doing more and more with the master blender and ended up he wanted me working with him full time and i think it was just I found it quite easy to articulate flavours, David. I was able to to tie smells and aromas into my life experiences and things that I've had. And I was able to remember the links. You know, if I smell a smell, it would link me back to, you know, peaches and syrup or homemade jam or toffee or certain sweets or, or, or places I had been. So I, I think what helped me move on quite quickly was I was able to describe flavours and remember them with those descriptions. That's really interesting because the wine world is is my world and I'll meet someone who has nothing to do with wine sometimes and they will come out with the most incredible tasting note, the most incredible description of a wine. And it is possible, I think, just to be, to an extent, a natural, isn't it? I think, I think, yeah, I think some, it, just, it just comes, it just comes easy to you. And flavours and descri- describing flavours and articulation of, you know, aromas is, is something that is, is very, very personal to people, you know, and, and I really encourage it in my blending team is that I'll say you'll never become a master blender using Sandy Hislop's words. You need to have your own words and be confident with them. And I'll be listening that you're using the same words. So it's about that. It's about that flavor book inside your head, your life experiences that you have had and all these things. that, And if you can link into those and help you explain the flavor and remember so that when you know it and you know you get those flavors, that is a specific whiskey or a specific brand. I'm sure you inspire many members of your team and actually doing my research, my homework, it's quite clear you have been an inspiration to uh, many over your lengthy career. Who has inspired you along the way? No, what a good question. I've been really lucky to work with lots of very passionate and capable people in the whiskey industry. If we're going to pick out one, I worked with the the legendary Jack Gowdy, who was the, the master blender for Ballantines. And he, he also served more than 40 years with the company. And he was, he, he instilled lots of great um, passion, knowledge in me to be able to manage not just the quality, but to manage the continuity of whiskies year in, year out. He was, um, he was certainly a very, very strong mentor for me in my career and was very, very helpful. And, and it was a big move for me coming down from the East Coast down to down to Glasgow, working down there. And he really took me under his wing and was fabulous in developing my skills as a, as a blender. And as you developed those skills, um, what would you now say is your ethos uh, when it comes to blending? My job is probably split into, if we're going to be really simple about it, it's split into two two categories it's into one category of looking after the existing blends that have been available for many many decades and making sure that the quality and the continuity of these are adhered to year in year out but also in the whiskey industry these days you know innovation is massive and myself and my team are responsible for all the new product development within the within the company so a lot of my time is taken up with experimentation cask trials working on different flavors so it's really varied it's really varied and really really wide as in the remit that i have with my team I was going to say, uh, I mean, it brings us neatly onto this issue. As director of blending, how do you balance this 
super important heritage side. You know, you're, you're dealing with the kind of the crown jewels to a certain extent, one of Scotland's oldest businesses. And yet at the same time, you've got to innovate and change to, to stay current. How do you manage to balance that? Yeah, that's that, that's a really good question. And and balance it, you have to do. And, you know, if, if we have, you know, I, I'm looking after a lot of very, very well-known, world-famous brands. You know, if we take Chivas Regal or Royal Salute, you know, my job is to make sure that Royal Salute 21-year-old signature blend, the flavour stays the same. If, we, if we're looking to innovate and make a new flavour or try something different, we will create a brand extension. I won't meddle with the 21-year-old signature blend. We'll create something new, something, a cask finish, or try and try something new. So it's not a case of my job is to deviate from the signature style of the whiskey. It's to make something new that people will enjoy. So... With that in mind, what would you point to as an example of innovation that you're really proud of? Oh, wow. I've been, I've been really fortunate in my career. I've been able to do lots of different expressions. You know, I, could, you know, I, I created the Chivas Regal, Mizanara, Glenlivet, Caribbean Reserve. I've been really fortunate to be able to create all the different Royal Salute polo expressions which have had some amazing cask finishes that are to be honest the Royal Salute polo expressions are like a hobby for me because they're a they're a one-off expression that's made you don't have the shackles of having to worry about making it next year you can just make something that is just absolutely amazing and it's a one-off you know you're going to have to make something different next year so it's it's an opportunity to showcase what we can do in finishing whiskies and by the same token Within the portfolio, you have these treasures, these legacy products, not to be tinkered or or trifled with, but potentially. So how do you go about kind of protecting the integrity of those products whilst sort of being conscious that you also potentially need to evolve them? It's a big job, and it's a job that needs to be managed right from the day the distillate is made. You know, as a master blender, I'm blending all the mature whiskies, bringing them together with my team, but also every single week myself or a member of my team will be up in Speyside checking the new distillate from each of our distilleries. So we have a really strong influence on the whiskey that's been laid, laid down for the future. So that that whiskey that's been laid down for the future is part of my job. I'm responsible for casks as well, so our cask procurement, what we bring into the inventory to fill that new distillate into, all these all these things set the standard for the future. So your question, you know, how do you manage both? You make sure that you have the right tools laid down many years in advance to give you that flexibility to be able to innovate, to be able to keep the continuity and innovate at the same time. It's a heritage business, but a lot must have changed across 40 years. I mean, if you think about everything else, over 40 years, then there have been uh, significant uh, changes all around us. Uh, what has changed in your world? Yeah, there's quite a few things. Probably the biggest the biggest thing is is process control. You know, when I first started in the industry, you'd have a you'd have a stillman at the distillery who was the great great grandson of a stillman that had been there before, and he would do exactly the same all the time. And then you'd get another stillman running the distillery just slightly different, and you'd get little variations. Now, we still have these stillmen running the, running the process, but there's much, much more great computer control in there. I can, If I set a standard of what we want from that distillery, from the new distillate, before it starts that maturation journey, I can hit that, hit that target nearly all of the time because of the process control that we have now that we didn't have in the past. So that is one of the kind of most significant changes. I'm guessing there are things that are still exactly the same as well as they were 40 years ago yeah absolutely how we how we assess all the individual cask samples how we pilot blend our high aged expressions yeah absolutely they're all they're all exactly the same and and even running the, the spirit cuts at the distillery we have a big input into that that we make sure that the distillery is producing the same flavor as it has over the decades and to what extent is your job science? Uh, you mentioned that you, you studied chemistry. And to what extent is it gut instinct? I'm sure it's both, by the way. I don't doubt that. But what's the kind of the breakdown, the balance, if you like, between those uh, two areas? 
Yeah, it's gut instinct. I would say that it's 80% gut, in, gut instinct, 20% science. It's You touched on it earlier on when we were talking there. You said it's built up over many years' experience. You know, you're you're learning on the job all the time. And I still find even after 40 years, we still stumble across really good expressions and things we can try. Things that we think are, you know, exciting that turn out to be a surprise and you end up going and, you know, really developing it further. Sandy Hislop, Director of Blending and Inventory at Chivas Brothers. To wine and Italy next, where Master of Wine, Sarah Heller, had the enviable task over the summer of assessing its finest wines for a series of insightful reports for Club Onologique. Her focus, Piedmont's Barolo and Barbaresco, Tuscany's Brunello and Chianti Classico, and also Amarone di Valpolicella. In her introduction, she stresses the importance of context in wine assessment. So I asked her to elaborate. There's both my context, right, acknowledging that I have a palate that effectively was raised on these more tannic, more acidic, less fruit-driven wines, right, if I want to sort of summarize it in a very blunt way, um, and wines where, where bitterness plays an important role, which I think historically um, in, in a French context or in, in the sort of Anglo-French continuum context, right, where where wines are being assessed, bitterness is, is largely been rejected as a flaw, whereas I think bitterness, certainly in contemporary Italian cuisine, is a critical part, right? That all of the coffee, all of the bitter vegetables, the amari, the, you know, all, all of these um, products um, that really just treat bitterness as another element of balance. When your palate is calibrated to that, bitterness in wine just seems like a natural, a natural um, balance for for fruit, for um, for alcohol, um, and so and so. Yes, uh, that that I think needed needed to be taken into account rather than um, you know just being being dismissed as a as a flaw. Yeah, bitterness is so much a part of the Italian palate across the board, mm-hmm. really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Although I've, I've, it's a subject that I've, I've dug into increasingly, again, for the Italy International Academy. Um, and it's really, it's really fascinating to, ta- to trace the, excuse me, the history of Italian cuisine um, starting in the Middle Ages, say, um, how how bitterness gradually came to be introduced it wasn't in the middle ages it certainly actually was it wasn't a major part of the cuisine except that italy was the only place um at that point in time um that regularly ate salad um so the i think some of the some of the books that i've been reading argue that italy is the 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 invention the home of the of the salad um and people eating regularly eating wild greens and uh, wild herbs. Um, and I think that those, um, that level of bitterness that you get in, the, in these wild vegetables and those herbal aromas um, really influences what people have selected in terms of grape varieties over the years. Right? There are a huge number of herbal, herbal aromas um, that we find in, uh, in Italian native grapes that are quite different to the ones that we find um, in international grape varieties. Yeah, so true and and so delicious as well, I have mm, to say. Yeah, you. yum. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, something as well in your introduction about tasting in situ, tasting at uh, a winery uh, where you're mm-hmm. uh, assessing their wines. You described that process mm-hmm. as holistic, but more open to bias. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, so I mean, holistic, it's it's the entire experience, but I'm... I'm a visual artist by training, right? So for me, the uh, we're, it's quite funny coming from a master of wine context, right? Where we're really we really try to strip everything else away. I remember studying deliberately, trying to make sure that any time I was assessing wine, I was in an, like an all white environment um, with exactly the same glasses that I would have um, in the exam, so as to kind of remove anything that might change my perception of the wines and post mw trying to remember that wine is always experienced in a context right there's 
Um, so much of the research Charles Spence has done, for instance, on the sounds that we hear, you know, the music that we hear while we're listening, the shape of the glasses. I mean, Riedel's done immense amounts of work on this also, but but I think beyond the physics of it, right? There's there's something psychological that takes place when we when we see round shapes, when we have a round uh, a round surface in contact with our mouths, we're primed to experience something as rounder, right? So we're we're I think if if and if I can get across anything in in the process of writing these reports, it's that there is ob- objectivity is is very tenuous, um, really, in the assessment of wine, and so. Being in the place where the wine is made is incredibly atmospheric, right? You've seen the site where the wine is from. It gives you an idea of what you should be expecting. You speak to the person who made the wine. You have feelings about them, whether positive or negative, and that will invariably change the way that you feel about the wine. And I, I know this because uh, it, it, this is underlined for me because there are several wines in that were tasted in the report where I tasted it once in the blind tasting um, at the consortio and once at the winery. And so I can compare my notes directly. Uh, it's reassuring that often some of it, or yeah, I'd say like the bulk of it is, is, is the same, right? If the fruit was more red than purple, I generally picked that up on both occasions. So that's, that's that's good to know, but certainly there are differences, and uh, and yeah, I, I think I, people are probably the biggest biggest bias of all, right? We 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 invariably see the wines differently once we know who's made them. There's no question, um, and so I think the the thing about it though that is useful is that you get a greater understanding from my side, my awareness of the stylistic kind of tendencies of Italian wine, but then also trying to provide the reader with an understanding of the place where the wine came from and the people behind it. Um, so as to cr- kind of fill in a bit of the experience, obviously you can't completely recreate, but a bit of the experience I might've had, had especially in the cases where I visited um, with, uh, with the producer. Um, I tried to, I tried to inject as much of that into the notes as I could. It's really interesting that, experiential element in our uh, qualitative assessment of a wine. Um, I I was talking to uh, Francis Malman, um, obviously the uh, guest editor of the current uh, edition of um, Club O in which you uh, you appear Mm -hmm. talking about uh, Cabernet Franc. And um, Mm -hmm. he is really interesting on things tasting different uh, depending on where you're uh, tasting this food in this case, but wine too, because mm-hmm. he's obviously big into his wine, mm-hmm. that sort of experiential thing, uh, the surroundings, mm-hmm. how they're decorated, the mm-hmm. atmosphere, the people you're mm-hmm. with, all of that stuff. It's mm-hmm. fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, and I think, thank goodness, right? Because otherwise, <laughs> we would just sit in, in completely white rooms with, with ISO glasses of taste. I mean, the, the, there's a, I don't know, there's sort of a hubris in in trying to trying to um, imagine that wine that wine is somehow experienced divorced from the context that it's in um, uh, wine and food pairing is kind of just one element of it right the 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 lighting the com- the company the the um, the music what whatever else is happening certainly has an impact on our sensory apparatus and yes I mean that that for example the big project that I had that sort of has, has pushed me further down this path is, is the visual tasting notes that I do um, where I tried to try to open the embrace this idea that, that wine each, each instance in which you taste the wine will be different. And so, and so each one is just representative of a single moment in which I tasted a wine. And I think critics do this as well, right? Where there's a, there's a um, statement about when the wine is tasted, acknowledging, right. That it evolves. Obviously, I tried. I tried to remove anything that um, would be too would be too prejudicial. Like, I didn't eat any food, for instance, while I was tasting any of the wines. I think that would have been that would have been taking it a step too far. But um, but certainly, yeah. in in a real life context, the food is going to have a huge influence on on the way that the wine is perceived. 
Yes. And if you're having something with a, uh, you know, uh, that, that's paired beautifully, then obviously that's going to enhance the wine equally. I suppose if you're having a, mm-hmm. uh, a chunk of garlic bread or something, then the wine's going <laughs> to be obliterated, isn't it? Exactly. Garlic was the first place my mind went as well. Yeah, which, of course, is a big is a big topic in, in Italian food because of the very different attitudes that people have to garlic um, uh, across the peninsula. Um I do find it hilarious in Piemonte that that um, you know the people where they're making the ragu and you know you're only allowed to smash a clove of garlic, put it in for a little while, and then remove it. But then on the other hand, you have bagna cauda, which is like a paste made of garlic. So there's yeah, there there's certainly there's certainly a lot um, in in Italian food that can that will affect the the way that that wine that wine tastes. Master of Wine, Sarah Heller, with some sage advice on garlic. Winning more gold medals than any other single producer from Argentina at the IWSC and the prestigious trophy for Red Wine Producer of the Year at the awards ceremony, Domaine Busquets, La Bida Mary and Anne Busquet have had plenty to celebrate. A few months ago, I interviewed them both about being pioneers of organic viticulture in Argentina. Well, for, for us, that's kind of a no-brainer. When, again, when in 2001, we, we, we understood as a family uh, the potential of doing organic here. I mean, and having had a vineyard before, and uh, my dad had to spray, like most of the vineyards in Europe, you know. And when we realized here we didn't have to spray, we could actually do uh, 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 agriculture and viticulture with no pesticide, no spraying. Uh, for us, we said, let's do it. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. It's 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 much much easier here. So if we don't do it here, we won't do it anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was for us a, a very, very important moment where we did the click. And and then we knew, I mean, Lebid was seeing that in the market. They were not ready ex- except in the Nordics, where they were putting actually tenders to, to get organic wine. But the rest of the world was was not ready to put to pay a premium for, for organic wines. But for us, it it was what we believed in. And, and you know, we were just going to do it. It was not because it, it, it never... It didn't start from from a sales with a sales objective in mind because when we decided we didn't even mm-hmm. have vines yet, mm-hmm. so it really started from understanding the, the 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 terroir, the climate, and the potential of doing organic and you know adding our grain of salt, sand or salt, you know, in, to mm-hmm. to make this world better. And Labid, um, organic now is fundamental to the proposition for the various wine labels that fall within Domaine Busquet. It's has the market in the time that you've been working in wine, has the sort of understanding, the demand for organic really changed? Yeah, absolutely. Like Anne said at the beginning when we first started and when you mentioned we were ahead of the curve, a lot of people were not prepared to have organic wines. At that time, 2005, there was a lot of mom and pop wineries that make organic wines, but the wine um, the wine quality was not very good at that time. And uh, when we went to Sweden, um, I spoke to the buyer uh, of Sweden uh, Monopoly, and um, they buy for the whole country. And they said they had the same problem. They always buy organic wine, and they don't sell. So that was our only opportunity to, uh, because we were getting so many rejections around the world, um, especially, you know, in in Europe uh, and, and, um, you know, Sweden was, I went to the supermarket and I saw maybe 25% of all the produce were organic. And I said to the buyer, how come you don't have more organic wines? And, And she said the same thing, you know, doesn't sell. So I said, try our wine and and they try the wine and all of a sudden they did a tender for like 250,000 bottles at that time we were maybe producing less than 50,000 bottles and all of a sudden we grew so much in that first tender after they were so happy even this uh, the, the the monopoly after that they did the extension of uh, first was Malbec after that we did the cab and the Chardonnay and at one point in 2000 
2007, we were 85% of all the organic wine sales in, in the country of Sweden. And and uh, once they saw that, that organic could work, they uh, created a goal of becoming, having 20% of their wines being organic by 2020. And in fact, they made it and now they have over 25% of their wines being organic that helped us to extend the organic you know uh, revolution from sweden going to finland going to norway going to canada so we were pushing that and we were successful after that when we came back to continental europe and they were more welcoming to organic but now uh, we're talking moving f fast forward and after covid um, a lot of people, really a lot of consumers care about their health. They, uh, they, 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 there's a trend about, uh, you know, good for you, healthy products. And um, definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's a different situation now. And I'm glad I see a lot of organic wineries popping up, uh, creating uh, better products. And our mission, Anne and I and, uh, and Guillaume, uh, our company, Domain Bousquet mission is really to promote the benefits of organic products the, and, and, and show the consumers that uh, organic could be beneficial for the, the consumers plus the environment. The more we can spread that word, the better it is for everybody. Mm, and uh, and you've taken it to um, arguably a, another level now by getting biodynamic certification from Demeter, which is expensive and involves a, a huge amount of thorough paperwork and everything else because you have to prove to Demeter that you are biodynamic. Why have you um, have decided to uh, to do that? Why have you pursued biodynamic? No, for us it was a, it was a logical continuation of what we've done with the organic. So we came to a point that okay, we we wanted to push it even further with biodynamic, and and for us actually you say yes, it's a lot of paperwork. Everything. Every certification is is very arduous. It's a lot of paperwork, but for us it's extremely important. And you we have a lot of certification and uh, we certify because now. You have a lot of wineries all over the world that say we farm sustain sustainable or we farm organic, but there is no certification. There is not the logo of a certifier in the back label. Therefore, the consumer, okay, has to take the word mm -hmm. of what they say. That there is nothing because the people who don't certify don't get the audits every year uh, like we do from the certifier. If one day it, it rains too much, they can go ahead and spray because they're not um, with a certification and they're not running then therefore the, the, the risk of losing it. So they can just do whatever they want and, and the consumer never knows. While with a certification, we are audited every year, sometimes several times a year, and that is a guarantee for the consumer. So we love to certify. It's also very good for us as a company uh, because it, 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 it forces the discipline of our teams uh, because these certifiers, they come and they, like you said, it's a lot of paperwork and they want everything to be to be mm. done well. So um, And they can turn up unannounced, can't they, as completely. well? Completely. They can turn up unannounced. Actually, the uh, BRC, uh, BRC uh, audit also, uh, which uh, certification, which is for supermarket and all this, it's an international level. Uh, the first two years, they announce it. And the third year, which was this year, they come unannounced. Right. And, uh, and that's very good discipline for our people, for our teams, uh, and good discipline for our company. So, yeah, so organic, we had it since, uh, since 2005. And then at one point, the logical evolution was uh, biodynamic, which we started two, three years ago. Um, and then another logical evolution, and the latest one was the ROC, the Regenerative Agriculture Certification. Uh, for us, it's very important because, and again, this is going a step even further. It's, it's really caring about regeneration of the soil. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, we, we put a lot of importance in, in that because when when you look at the soil, the soil can also 
uh, grasp and 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 take into uh, into the soil all the carbon dioxide that big thing that CO two that is the big problem now you know the, the the change of the climate and all that because we've with all the industries in the past fifty years we have emitted so so much CO two well there is a, a, an amazing uh, documentary that I love to see which is called Kiss the Ground and that shows you how if you have a very healthy soil one of the one of the solution to the mess we've created is is to to have soils with plants with trees with healthy plants with plants that are very very uh, uh, with a lot of energy very very live lively and they will absorb the carbon dioxide and they will put it in the ground which actually the ground needs it Mm-hmm. Not the sky where we are, and 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 that is a very important uh, for the future of the agriculture. And this is about using techniques on the soil that don't plow it up so much, so they don't release exactly. carbon dioxide, yeah. and then improving the soil quality so that the plants through photosynthesis absorb, absorb. more and, and, and carbon store dioxide. It in, store it in the in the ground. Domaine Busquets, Anne Busquet, and Labide Ameri, her husband. Congratulations to them both on their success at the IWSC Awards. And thank you to you for listening to another Highlights edition. Do join us next week as we kick off Series 12 with none other than Idris Elba. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits.